If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love our new Trexperts briefing room where Darren and myself curate classic episodes of Star Trek with special guests from various Star Trek series talking about the episodes you love. I think that sounds great. Let's, well, I can't let's, wait to do it. Let's go see. What episodes are we doing, Darren? Well, I, we don't want to give it away. Okay. Well, then you need to watch Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts and on the new Trexperts Briefing Room podcast feed. Don't miss it. Coming intermittently <laughs> in the coming weeks. Trexperts Briefing Room. It's what every real Trexpert needs. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's you know what I love about it's the Electric be, Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download got, the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then it, in press, the United States, press the button. And there it is. There it is. And you can choose, you can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait, download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is the man, the myth, the legend, mm -hmm. Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? All good, man. Thank you. Uh, and we are very excited because with us today is our guest, Mr. Derek Kolstad, who is a screenwriter whose name you may or may not, unfortunately, because it's screenwriters and the average person maybe doesn't care about screenwriters, which makes Derek and I angry. <laughs> uh, but you may recognize his name as the creator of the character John Wick and writer of all three of the John Wick movies. He is also a writer currently at the time of recording of this episode. I think we got one episode to air left of Disney Plus's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And he has a movie in the theaters right now, which you should check out, starring Bob Odekert called Nobody, which I know Steve is a big fan of. Oh, absolutely. Uh, how you doing, Derek? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Uh, it's overcast here in LA, which is a sunny day elsewhere. It's kind of nice. <laughs> oh, it was great. Sitting outside, absorbing the cold. Um, but for our <laughs> listeners, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. On this episode, we will be talking about, you know, roads not taken with Derek. But if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know, something that comes up a lot on the show is 
the idea that when a filmmaker, writer, director, otherwise has uh, any level of success, big or small, they usually get a little heat after that. And that's kind of the moment where you start getting attached to uh, more projects, which inevitably some of those drop off and become these unmade movies we talk about on the podcast. Uh, but that's usually always in uh, the rearview mirror when we're talking with our guests of something that happened a while ago. And we thought with Derek, it's a fun opportunity to talk with someone who's still right in the midst of that uh, quote unquote heat. Since every time there's a new John Wick movie, you get a little more, little bit of a bump. Um, so Derek has a lot of irons in the fire, probably most of which it's too soon to say which are the ones that are going to go and not go. But it'll be fun to talk about, I think, kind of an undiscussed part of the industry, which is really what makes up uh, the vast majority in some years of a professional writer's time isn't even the sitting down and writing words and blocking. It is trying to get projects, developing projects, even the projects you do get. Uh, I just had one that my writing partner, Pat and I finally got the kickoff uh, just last week to start writing. Uh, but we started talking about that project with the producers, I think back in July. Uh, and right now it is uh, the end of April. Um, but before we get to that, uh, Derek, you know, we I've been talking to you now for like a year. I know you're from Wisconsin, from Minnesota. So we got those similar backgrounds, but I don't really know the in-between point. Uh, what yeah. is your origin story? What what, how did you come from Wisconsin and then lead up to Mr. John Wick? Yeah, the, the world is very big in a very small place at the same time. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, I grew up in, uh, so I was born in 74. I'm 47 years old, and I'm a child of the 80s. Um, but uh, I grew up as a guy who was just a voracious reader. And, of course, the NES came out, and uh, friends had cable TV and uh, beta, VHS, Laserdisc. I got to see movies that... My dad watched and my grandfather watched, and I just became a fanboy of the medium. You name a you name a genre, you name a movie, I'd see it, you know. And uh, I've I've been this height uh, since about the age of twelve or thirteen, so I never I was never carded at the theater, and they knew. <laughs> I, mean, I went it was a different time, time anyway. I feel like. But I mean, they knew, and, yeah. and yet I, I saw everything, and you know, uh, some of my favorite memories in, in regards to film is. The one movie my parents asked me not to see was uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom because it was uh, evil and a little bit demon-y, right? Which it is. Okay. And my favorite memory of my dad in movies, this is, this is one of two, is he came home after seeing the, seeing the movie and I sat him down and I made him recount all of Temple of Doom. And he told me this awesome tale of Indiana Jones. And it wasn't until six years later I realized my dad had fallen asleep in the movie and just made something up on the spot. Um, but he knew how much he loved it. I love movies. So he, I can't remember the tale, but it was amazing. Um, and you know, when I saw RoboCop, you know, which at the time Verhoeven and how super ultra violent cool that was, uh, one of my favorite memories of my mom in regards to this endeavor was exciting. I didn't lie. I'm terrible at it. And just, she asked me what I'd seen. I'd said RoboCop and I excitedly recounted the whole movie and I laughed. And apparently she looked at my dad and said, we should probably encourage him in this. <laughs> and so from then going forward, it was movie, movie, movies. But even though I wanted to write from a young age, um, the idea of going from Madison, Wisconsin and pre-internet days to Hollywood, um, that was, uh, you know, extra planetary, you know. And so I went to college, business degree, 
uh, family company, which was construction. And then I ended up moving to Chicago and worked for Dale Carnegie of the How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was about 26 years old. And uh, Wait, he was still, you worked for him or like his? No, he, it's a franchise enterprise. Oh, okay. You know? I so I, I look, I worked for that region. It was a good job. I enjoyed it. But I'm not a sales guy, uh, which is ironic because we're screenwriters. We are salespeople. <laughs> um, and uh, I was still, since the age of 13, writing a script or two a year and then just saving it on a, on a disc or printing out and putting it on a shelf. I wouldn't send it off too much. You know, I just, you know, I, I, it, I needed to write. And my, my little brother was off of college and he gave me a, a call and he asked me how he was doing. I just started crying. And I'm not a, an emotional guy. And in that moment, uh, I realized I had to come fail. You know, I had to at least come here and fucking fail at it. And so uh, packed up my little uh, Golf TDI. Uh, half of the back seat was a CRT monitor <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> and uh, drove out here knowing one, one, one guy I went to kindergarten with. And, uh, you know, I always uh, had the ability to make ends meet. Mom and dad helped out. Grandpa helped out. Family helped out. And uh, in many respects, I was a 15-year overnight success. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you look at getting into that trade, when I first came out in 99, 2000, it was physically printing off scripts using a razor blade to kind of hone the edges. So it looked really cool, <laughs> making sure there's no grammatical errors, making sure that, you know, all these different things. And then set, spending 200 bucks I didn't really have at the Kinko's to send it off, you know, randomly. And uh, of course, you randomly, you know, get some traction. And, uh, uh, got a manager, uh, did the rounds, and uh, the screenplay I had at the time was called The Wayfarer. Uh, it had uh, two black leads, and so they automatically thought I was black, and uh, Derek Colstead <laughs> is not is not black man. Um, and yet, it made for a lot of humor, and I got to know a lot of people, and uh, yet, at the same time, I had the um, corporate thick skin, but not the industry thick skin. Like, when you know, in corporate kind of yes is a yes and no is a no. And industry is yes could be whatever the fucking means. I still don't really know. And I got burnt out in, in right away of going like, ah, this isn't what I thought it would be. And so stepped away, but stayed out here in LA because I loved it. And uh, like, what year yeah. are we talking about? Uh, honestly, like 2002, 2003. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kept writing and uh uh, got married and, and Sonia's first line of defense. Uh, she edits everything I do. And uh, I wrote, uh, you know, a couple of um, direct to DVD things that are what those projects tend to be, but still kind of proud because it got made. Um, there was very little, if negative money involved in that, but it saw me a little bit of the wizard behind the curtain. Uh, and uh, right when I was kind of, uh, you know, not wanting, right when I was about done, like to like maybe become a novelist or just do some different writing, which is a difficult thing for me. I think like a screenwriter, I always have. I think like movies, TV. Um, I wrote this thing called Simple Man, which is now called Acolyte. And Sonia's like, you should try again. And uh, I tried again and I got uh, managers uh, that they're now currently my agent and my manager. I've been with them for a while now, I guess eight years, nine years. And uh, that thing was optioned, nothing happened with it. And then, uh, you know, John Wick happened uh, soon thereafter. And you know, John Wick came about because uh, 
I just kind of realized I hadn't written anything that I really fucking loved from the sixties and seventies. And that was, do you remember the voice, the guy who would do those, those commercials, the grindhouse, like uh, he left the war, but they followed him home. And I was like, you know, you're eating popcorn going, this movie's awesome before it even starts, you know? And that's how John Wick came to be. You know, I wrote the first one very quickly and uh, reps loved it. And uh, they had a bunch of notes. We sent it off, uh, got Thunder Road attached. Uh, they got uh, Keanu and then we got Chad and Dave and we got Lionsgate after the fact, because it was a uh, international, it was a, a pre-sell type of thing. You know, it was a, a quilt work house of cards. Um, and then it was a, I don't know what the term is, but you know, a negative pickup of, Hey, uh, we'll take the movie for nothing, but we'll put this much advertising into it. But when you think of, I sold that movie in February and it was shooting in November. Um, that's stunning and, and amazing, you know? And so I, I look at that as a blessing and yet also kind of knowing full well that that wasn't going to happen again, but then you're John Wick two and three that followed in relatively quick succession for a franchise. Um, but that, that kind of gives you a nutshell. Uh, and then um, we had nobody, uh, which was, um, you know, Bob Odenkirk and his wife caught John Wick late one night on cable on a trip, I think. And he called me into the office and uh, I had a dream the night before. And I told Sonia over breakfast, dude, I had this dream. And I told her the dream and she's like, tell him that. <laughs> so I met Bob and he's, he's like your, your dad's best friend or your favorite uncle. I love him. And uh, I said, look, man, I don't know what the movie is yet, but it's a black and white shot. It's you beaten to shit. You're wearing glasses and one of the lenses is cracked. And uh, suddenly the song, buy me a ticket on the airplane begins to play. And it's deafening. It's a very short song. And uh, it's probably only in your head and you reach into your pocket, bring out a pack of cigarettes and you notice that two fingers are dangling off of your hand. There's, you know, broken or whatever. So you take that strip off the, the, the cigarettes and you bind it into place. You light a cigarette, Zippo lighter. You notice the Zippo lighter has got a bullet in it, but you don't think anything of it. <laughs> and you reach into your pocket and you bring out a can of tuna and another one in the opener and you open it. And then another one, the kitten puts down in front of it and you lean back and you smoke and the song ends and someone off screens says, who the fuck are you? And you say, me, me, I'm title card, nobody. And he looked at me and he's like, you're fucking hired. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Sold it in the room. Well, yeah. let's pause here just a second because I do want to go back because I'm always interested about these yeah, things we never got to see. Um, what, what was the elevator pitch on? Was it the Wayfarer? Is that what it was called? Yeah, the Wayfarer was just, it was a weird one because it was very much like uh, um, a like altered states meets um uh what was what was that uh um horror movie in space um event, event horizon Island. you know it was, it was like that and it was a super expensive movie at the time but in essence you have these two characters that are in an insane asylum and uh beginning to question like it's the insane asylum is like 1849 and things are beginning to peel back the layers and the reveal is they're actually astronauts in the ship and they're in an experiment by this creature known as the Wayfarer who, and the, the thing it's trying to figure out is fear. It doesn't understand fear. And so it's putting these characters through fear so that I can understand what it is they go through. 
uh, it's a little bit of a mind fuckery thing, uh, a little bit of the Jacob's ladder, a little bit of this, this shit I grew up in regards to like, um, uh, you know, a messed up take on, it's kind of like stir of echoes, you know, and like all of those kind of things in a sci-fi setting. Um, it was long, it was expensive. It was weird, you know, and yet <laughs> it was, it was enough of a, that's, that's different that it got me some meetings. I mean, and the weird thing about that story is it's the first one that I kind of sent out to everybody, but it's not, I'm not, I like sci-fi. I like thriller. Horror is the only one uh, that I watch all the time and I keep up with, but it's not the stuff I write. You know, I'd rather do three days of the condor all the time um, by way of um, something with a little edge, a little humor, like the 48 hours of it all. Mm -hmm. um, but that one, like, people have asked before like can i read it and i'm like i go back to that script and read the first page and go no <laughs> <laughs> never uh well, and then think... what about the oh sorry steve go ahead oh no i, I think it was um bef uh, uh the two the two scripts you wrote were uh you wrote two dolph lundgren movies one in yeah. the chamber and the package at the time i was pretty much watching every Dolph movie because I grew up with him yeah, like you say, did. That's Steve's wheelhouse. Uh, Dude, no, I, the, the, the package, the uh, one of the chamber was, that was my first kind of official gig. And uh, it was a non-union show, um, but the amount they paid was out of the catering budget. Uh, and it was at the time, probably two months of rent. So gold baby. And uh, it was a good experience. Um, um, it was a hard experience because it was a very long script that the first thing I did is cut in half and uh, kind of build out Dolph's character. And then after that, um, uh, Dolph really dug his character in that movie and he had the stone cold with the package. And that was, that was shot in like 11 days, you know, and you look at that as a movie. Uh, I'm pretty proud as were a lot of the producers going, huh? Like it's, not only watchable, it's okay, you know? Um, but I got to tell you, one of my first highlights there was I met, uh, I met up with Dolph at Soho, uh, Soho House downtown, and it was surreal um, because he, he's larger than life, and you guys know better than most. Actors tend to be diminutive, you know? Oh, yeah, usually they're, like, because I'm only 5'6", and I feel like half the time I'm like, oh, my God, I'm taller than you, and your head is enormous. Oh, I know, usually... I know. But Dolph is a big dude um, and uh, a very kind man and uh, a pretty bright and very bright guy. And it was fun, you know, but honestly, after the package, um, it, it was, ex it was a lot of work. It was exhausting for just enough to get by. <laughs> and I, I'm all for equity legacy plays and things, but um, I just, you know, I wasn't sure. And it was Mike Callahan, one of the producers on it, saying, look, I, there's, these, there's these managers, uh, Josh Adler and Mike Goldberg, I'd like you to, to introduce you to. And we just hit it off. And they're still my reps. Oh, wow. No, that's really cool. I, what's cool about the package, too, it's directed by Jesse V. Johnson. I'm a big fan of his Scott Atkins movies. He does oh, he's, right and now. he's such a cool dude. He's such a nice man. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen Avengement. It's pretty awesome. Scott yeah. Atkins movie. Yeah. Like I love his new movies, like the deck collector and deck collectors and stuff. So that's pretty awesome. You got to work on a Dolph stone cold movie back in the day yeah, with my, him. My dad's know? side of the family was from Sweden. So I always grew up with a particular <laughs> fondness yeah. for Dolph. 
Yeah, uh, happy to see him having a comeback there with oh, Aquaman. Happy he was an Aquaman in Creed Two. Yeah, it was so awesome. You know what I love about Dolph when I when I I met him the once, then we talked on the phone a couple of times. Was that I didn't bring it up, but within the first couple of minutes, he started talking about Rocky and how he owes that movie everything. And what I love about that is uh, I'm not a big fan of people who are not a big fan of where they came from. Of like, you meet an actor and you're like, oh, I love that movie. It's like, fuck that movie. I'm like, well, then <laughs> yeah. no, we're done here. You know, I like the guy that recognizes that that was the turning point, you know? And when he talked about it with such uh, love and affection and that relationship he has with Sly Stallone, it was like, it was, it was real. It was endearing. And, you know, it's kind of nice to see a little bit of the reality behind it. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I know Stallone forever before Creed two, he had a script out there called Drago that was just about his character. And I bet that, I never read it, but I bet eventually that leaked into Creed two, but it was pretty cool that Stallone always had that relationship with him and then putting them in the expendables. I don't know, I just love that stuff, you know? That's really <laughs> awesome. Yeah, dude, I mean, you know, we're only as good as the people we surround ourselves with. So that's great to hear. Uh, and so what about the Acolyte? What was the premise behind well, that Acolyte- Acolyte's still in, in play somewhere. Like, uh, you know, I mean, not somewhere, but I mean, uh, I optioned it um, right after the first John Wick and they kept, uh, you know, um, you know, refreshing the option and, and hopefully it moves forward. Um, but uh, the, the idea uh, and impetus for the, sim- it was originally a simple man is uh, I like unique, but familiar, right? Things that begin. And then I, I don't always turn convention on us here. I kind of just a, do a quarter twist. And this is guy in the woods uh, who's got, you know, in essence, PTSD lives with his wife. And uh, one night a package uh, delivery service shows up and they grab his wife and take off. And a uh, guy shows up on the doorstep, uh, like the beginning of Commando. I remember that one. Mm-hmm. And it was, hey, you've been chosen to do this thing. You're a nobody. You're you're part of the Simple Man program. We want you to do this thing. And he immediately slaughters everybody, blows up his own house, and takes off. <laughs> and everyone's like, who the hell is this? He was supposed to be a random guy. And in essence, he realized that there's no such thing as you know coincidence. It wasn't random. Um, but uh, that that's where that went. And what I like about those movies too, is it just starts, you know, uh, sometimes with nobody, for instance, that first, you know, that shooting draft, the first act was 36 pages. Now there's a lot of sequences with no dialogue, you know, it's all in there, but then the editor had the great idea to go like, dude, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And suddenly that 12 pages of stuff we had was rendered down to 45 seconds of better. Oh, wow. And, and, and dude, he, he was phenomenal in that respect, but I often likes, you know, like the slow burn, uh, first acts. Um, but you know, in this day and age, like let's, let's get to it and get to it quick. Hmm. Well, I have a, I, I stumbled acro- across your first draft of John Wick. It was called scorn and yeah. the character was described much differently in, in the opening of that one. Um, yeah. I mean, it was originally with, I always write with, dead actors in my mind. Like I was, in my head, it was Paul Newman, you know? So I'd love that guy. And I, I just thought it was, you know, him in his early seventies, late sixties, the dog is 16 years old. The, the wife is long dead and nothing else really changed outside of the body count, you know, 
But I like the idea of taking a character and making sure that the action fit. And so the idea was to take a, an actor in their late 60s and to actually show how he could just lay waste. You know, he could, you know, that the old man Logan of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, when um, we started going out to uh, directors first, uh, I got a call from uh, 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 Thunder Road and they're like, uh, hey, Keanu Reeves just called. Do you want to go meet him? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> cool. Yes. And so uh, I went over to his house on a Friday afternoon. Um, he is larger than life. He's, you know, like I said before, they tend to be smaller. He's my, he's my height, six, two, six, three. And, uh, a kind and gentle guy that just geeked out on the script. And I spent probably two months at his house every weekend for eight hours a day going through the script and not just his character, but everything until he finally looked at me one day and he's like, all right, I'm going to, let's do it. And in my head, I was like, oh, we were doing it, but. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> and then Chad and Dave, of course, they knew him for years because of the work they did on uh, the Matrix. And it's really hard to, to get to know Chad and work with Chad and then go watch the Matrix. And every scene that Chad's in, it just rips you out of the movie now. They're going, hey, Nia, uh, Chad. Hey, Nia. <laughs> you know? um, but it was a it was a chaos. It was a chaotic year of an ungodly number of pages and, and drafts and people jumping on and no one jumping off. And then suddenly it's shooting. And you're like, wait, what now? Um, yeah. Wow. And then when John Wick came out and, you know, uh, proved to be, um, I don't want to say surprise success, but I'm sure it took a, everyone a little bit by surprise to what extent it did succeed uh, for a little movie that could. And I have enough to remind myself uh, you know, because Keanu Reeves has been Keanu Reeves my whole life. But when you actually like look at his IMDb, not that that resurrected his career, but he'd actually he'd been on sort of a, a slow streak making kind of weirder choices, movies like The Lake House. Uh, and this kind of relaunched him again as an action star. But when that became a success, do you and maybe it's impossible to remember this kind of thing, but do you remember what your first like meeting you got that you could tell oh and because now i'm the guy who wrote hit movie john wick you know honestly it wasn't until the last year um just because uh and again there, i i might be misremembering it but where it felt real to me was honestly the last uh, 18 months two years because after john wick there was a little bit of a uh Ah, that's an outlier. You know, that's, that's a little random. Yeah. And then we did John Wick 2 so far after, you know, so soon after the fact. And it was like, yeah, but, and then three, and you, then suddenly it's like the begrudging, like, okay, you, I guess you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know? Now, the cool thing, though, is because of that experience, um, you know, again, if you want to pigeonhole me in John Wick for the rest of my life, those kinds of movies, have at it, man. Fucking love them, you know? Um, but I got to be known as kind of the, the universe built guy. You know, and that's exciting because the stuff I watch tends to be cartoons and old black and white movies and uh, horror, you know, and uh, which paints me a serial killer. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, to me, uh, I bring up Ronan all the time. There's one of those movies. Right. But if it was a franchise, it'd be my favorite franchise. There's so many seedlings that are planted in that thing that 
don't come to fruition. And then even growing up with Star Wars, you hear about Jabba the Hutt and don't see him for two more movies. You know, mm. um, I just, you know, you know, you grow up with these hints at something larger and sometimes it's answered, sometimes it's not. And oftentimes you never want it fully answered. You know, uh, you know, you look at your favorite movies that at a certain point have that sequel and you're like, yes. And then they answer something a certain way. And you're like, well, I'm out, you know, <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I mean, you did a phenomenal job world building. Uh, I mean, yeah, I want to gush. Yeah, John Wick movies are awesome. I love them. And uh, were there any alternative ideas you had for the sequel when you had to step in? I mean, when you had to suddenly come up with a... And uh, yeah, and you called it Chapter 2 instead of John Wick 2. Is there something behind that? Honestly, that was just uh, in the moment. We just liked the idea of Chapter 2. You know, because one of the things we didn't want to do is the idea of a sequel. Because uh, when you think about like that whole trilogy, uh, takes place in a couple of weeks. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and man, that guy's body. You know. Um, but I think going into the second one, you know, especially with Keanu, because he is so reticent from doing sequels. You know, part of the reason that he's done some of the movies he's done is he likes taking chances. He likes seeing something unique and cool. And he loves young filmmakers. I mean, Chad and Dave, he took a massive chance on them and it paid, uh, paid on spades for everybody. Um, yeah, I didn't you know, realize he, that that was the order it went, that he was already attached and brought them on. It's yeah. pretty cool. I'd always just assumed that it was the other way around where they'd gotten a hold of the script and were pulling a favor from Keanu. You know, and again, I, I, I don't know if he sent it to them or if Thunder did, but like it was all around the same time. But, you know, I had been talking to Keanu first and, you know, Chad and Dave in that room working off of each other and having the relationship they did with, with uh, Keanu and Best Idea Wins and Iron Trevor's Iron. It was kind of after the first meeting, it's like a no brainer. But I still remember the first of, official meeting with everybody we were at keanu's house for six hours and we got to page seven and we left and dave's like holy shit <laughs> uh, and then of course you know you begin to speed up because it, you always spend the most time in the first act and then you just sprint uh circling back though on steve's question um are and granted you know you're still making more john wick movies so i'm sure there's some ideas you're still kind of hip pocketing, but when you were looking at, Oh, we're going to be doing some sequels. Was there ever a version in your mind uh, that you were considering that ultimately you were just like, no, no, no wait, We're taught. That's not the direction this is going to go. You know, it's, it's funny because like um, I like, you know, the mid budget, I like the programmer and I know they, they're kind of dirty words, but those are the favorite movies growing up, you know? And to me, I never really wanted to go much bigger than, than two. And it's not a matter of me wanting. It's, I just don't think that way. To me, and I say this in every meeting, but like I want the hallway scene from Old Boy, hallway scene from The Raid. I want the elevator sequence from Die Hard with a Vengeance or uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. I want those intimate scenes of action like Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron in the car. You know, That's the kind of stuff that as an action junkie, I want to be a part of and yet when you see that each uh installment is going to be bigger that was growing pains for me to actually think uh from let's say regional to state to national to international it it's a little bit um of a, a learning curve for me um and yet you look at all of those movies your favorite scenes in any of the biggest movies 
are like, you know, Raiders of Lost Ark, Indiana Jones shooting the swordsman, uh, you know, in, in John Wick 2, that sumo guy just glancing back and shooting him is hilarious. <laughs> and in 3, it's when he puts together the, the, the pistol for, for one shot. And then the two guys are hurling knives at each other and just they're going thunk, 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 because they're trying to gauge weight and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the magic lies. Uh, the rest, I lean heavy, heavily on, uh, on production company and studio and everyone else. Um, because it's not a matter of me caring, but I prefer for those moments where, you know, uh, you, you have just an action sequence that's a character beat. Yeah, for part two, it's that silencer battle between oh, him and Common. That's the one I always go back to in that one. One again, too, like I also like that there's this weird fucked up moral compass, unspoken you know, rule set of, you know, the professional courtesy. Um, and even looking at the first John Wick, you know, one of the scenes that we always really loved is when he he finds that giant, uh, uh, you know, guard outside of the house, uh, outside the building, and he knows him. And he's like, why don't you go home? <laughs> he's like, cool, thanks, John. That shows something about John. And, and to me, um, some of the best characters made in the past you know, 60, 70 years are Chili Palmer from Get Shorty uh, because, you know, he liked people. He was, he, he empathized. And, you know, um, that scene in the, in the parking lot where he hits James with Gandolfini in the neck and then catches him and lowers him to the ground. He says, breathe, breathe. And he's like, I heard you were in movies. Which ones? Have I seen any? And James is like, nah, man, nothing you've seen. He's like, you'd be surprised. And the camera pans back as these two guys geek out about B movies, you know? And then you look at uh, Nick Charles from Thin Man from the late thirties. Here's a guy who was the gentleman detective, but if he put you away, he took care of your family. And when you get out, he got you a job. And so he's not a killing machine. He's doing right by the law and right by you. And I love the idea that the people in John's life, they're more than assets, you know? It's, it's, the, it's, it's the fucked up little family that he's built across the spectrum. That's why he is who he is. You know, you can, you can argue all you want about him being the best this or this or that. But to be honest, he's shown mercy, grace, and uh, empathy. While also being pretty fucking dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, as we kind of said uh, in the intro, as far as uh, a topic we always hint on, but is rarely kind of a focus of an episode, uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about like bake-offs and just kind yeah. of the the endless development marsh you can almost yeah. think of the industry. Uh, how would you describe a bake-off for the, the listeners who don't know what that means? Well, bake-off is when <laughs> a carrot is thrown to uh, 11 uh, uh, starving artists and they fight for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and oftentimes they don't tell you it's a bake-off. You know, they'll say, hey, we have this IP. And usually, usually bake-offs are IP, you know, mm. um, graphic novel, video game, adaptation, remake, something like that. And they're like, we want to hear your take. And so I put together my take, come in, present it. And then that's about the time where at the end of said uh, conversation, we're only talking to you, becomes like, Derek, love it, got some notes. And, uh, you know, we've got some other considerations and other people we're meeting with. Yeah. And that's when you realize, oh, Oh, it's, it's me versus any number. And the <laughs> yeah. hardest thing about bake-offs that way is you put your best foot forward and you realize that if you don't get the job, they're going to take some of those elements that you came up with and bake it in to the winning, you know, pie. And you have to go, well done, you know? Um, 
that's the tough part. And yet sometimes you kind of have to throw your hat into the ring because you love it or you connect with it or you need it. Or to be honest, at the beginning, what else are you going to do? Like, you know, the idea that if I hadn't sold a screenplay and I, I wrote a screenplay and sent it to my agent said, cool, go sell that. And then I'll start writing again. No, as soon as you send it off, you better write fade in. Mm -hmm. um, so bake-offs to me, they're exhausting. They still occur. But at this, at this stage, they kind of occur when, and they'll, they'll say, look, uh, it's a bake-off. We're talking to you and these two other guys, you know, I mean, you, you and I went through a bake-off, you know, yeah. but, but it was awesome because I was like, Hey, if you get it, great. No, yeah, happy, totally. Happy. <laughs> I, I, I feel like usually they don't want you to know who the other people are. And invariably, normally when I find out who the other people are, I'm like, Oh, that fucking guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to be so mad if we lose to that guy. Yeah. Derek, it's like, yeah, good. Um, well, no, and the, the funny thing or is, it's is also like, worse if like, it was like Josh Olson was on our podcast previously. And he talked about when he was nominated for an Oscar for history of violence, he was up against, Larry McMurtry for Brokeback Mountain. And this was, you know, uh, literary American darling, Larry McMurtry getting his four decades in, like he's going to win no matter what. But yeah. he said, sometimes we found out too when we're up against someone, it's more just like, wow, how did we even get in this bake off? Like they're going to, even if our take is better, they're still going to give it to that other guy. Like he's a superstar. But, yeah, I mean, there is that too, but also there's this notion of they try to, they try to play writers against each other. Now, arguably, that's the game. You know, you play in any industry, you play certain players against each other, especially when it comes to uh, you've been replaced or you are replacing someone. And honestly, a lot of uh, most of most of what we do is you contact the other writer and go, dude, well done. They hired me Gonna do my thing. Let's see what how it plays, you know, or like if I get a, a piece of information that can uh, assist or help you, it's like, hey, we're both going for this thing. Uh, good luck, <laughs> you know, because there's a good chance one of us might get it and the other guy's going to get the rerun. I mean, come the end of it, who, you know, the, the idea of, uh, no, it has to be in my name and my name only. That's not the reality. It's, uh, you know, you want cool shit made with cool people. Is there, was there one maybe kind of early on a bake-off you were in that you were willing to share that, that you, you really wanted and didn't get and were kind of bummed? You know, now the bake-offs early on were a little bit different um, because, you know, when I first came out in 2000, it was people expecting you to bring them IP, you know? Um, and that could just been a weird window that I remember. And I, I remember it incorrectly, but um, there were, <laughs> there were times where you go in and you're like, uh, the one I really liked is, I don't know if you remember on the PlayStation, there's this game called Parasite Eve. Oh yeah. It was a mm. super cool game and it had to do with, uh, you know, part of your cells evolving outside of you and just kind of like body horror. It was Cthulhu by way of Resident Evil. Um, and, you know, tried to set that up and got close. And then, uh, the cell came out. People were like, well, and I was like, dude, that's completely different. Like, is <laughs> that's it the worst? Yes, it is. They're like, or they're like, oh, we love your idea, but we can't do it because we've also got this other project. And they'll like tell you the premise, and you're like, that's not even yeah. remotely similar. It's like you're let's make like you're pitching a mummy movie, and they're like, oh, we've already got this zombie movie, and they both walk slow. 
Yeah. And it's just like, those aren't the, all right. <laughs> well, honestly, the, the hardest thing is, is in this, this is kind of an answer to the, the bake off as well is a lot of times, and this is no one's fault. It's just the way that the human mind works is um, uh, they'll tell you what they want until they get it. Um, and that's, you know, the number of times where I'm like uh, a producer and exec will say, we want a movie with these 15 things and you excitedly build it out and you're like, this works. And then they're like, oh, well, it doesn't have that other thing. It's right there. It's right, it's right there. Well, is it Derek? Cool, bro. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of that. But in regards to like Bake Off's having lost, um, a lot of times Bake Offs don't feel like a Bake Off, you know? Um, there were certain graphic novels that I sprinted off, uh, but I was nobody. And, uh, you know, just eluded me. And now, you know, friends are doing, you know, um, and like, I was obsessed with DMZ for years. I, I loved that graphic novel and I can't remember who's doing it. Um, but it was like, yeah, of course they can do that. I'm, you know, this is pre John Wick, uh, pre package, pre everything. And then, uh, you know, I loved the game, the division. And then, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that fell through grasp simply because of, you know, bigger names involved in timing and luck. And yet you can never feel hurt about it. You, if you're a fan of it and you're pursuing it and it gets made, you just hope it's good. Like, that's what you should be thinking. You shouldn't be feeling, oh, fuck, mine was better. Who's to know, man? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what was your approach for the Parasite Eve movie? You know, honestly, it's <laughs> looking back on it, it was taking elements of that original cutscene, which took place at like an opera and which was a little bit of a rip off of fifth element, you know, and she transforms, you know, and mine was more of like doing an altered states kind of take on that real time, you know, like uh, 16 blocks um, by way of um, resident evil meets um, night of living dead, you know, where everything is warping and stuff. But I would also argue looking at technology 18 years ago, um, I was pitching a very expensive movie. Uh, and I was nobody and not a lot of people knew the IP and a couple of gamers might've. Um, but again, too, like when you think of IP in general and, you know, I, I, it's amazing. Like you'll get a graphic novel from a producer going, Hey, we got the rights. We really want you to do it. And I know comic books, I know graphic novels, I know video games, but like, what is this? And you read it and you're like, you optioned this. And you, and, and again, <laughs> yeah. not, that, not saying that this is bad. But like, you, you kind of have to say that other idea we were talking about, that was super cool. Like just, this is that other movie again, but because it has pages you can flip through or click through, um, it's worth more. Yeah, well, Pat and I are in sort of the weird spot right now, which is funny that it's considered this because uh, in our minds, Sonic the Hedgehog is a great character to make a movie out of. Yeah. But I can tell the rest of the industry considered that one a not a bad character but like a property of what do you do with this again it seemed obvious to all of us making it but because it had that perception now they keep offering us these like oh this is our ip that just seems awful and we don't know what to do with but you're the guys <laughs> who can crack this stuff right and i'm just like oh you're the mean, garbage you're the recycling garbage exactly where it's no. like i guess thank you but at the same time it would be nice to get presented with an ip that we're like oh i love that ip well, and that's the thing though, too, is looking at nobody with Bob Odenkirk um, that came about from a meeting that he wanted to do this kind of movie. And, you know, he didn't want to be preachy. 
you know, he's told the story any number of times of having a break in the cops, just making him feel shitty about not having a gun and killing the guy. And it haunted him. And he, he just like, but I don't want to do soapbox. I want to have fun. I want to do an action bit of catharsis. And when we first went out with that pitch and it was a treatment and, and we, were, we were so proud of it. I mean, we beat the pavement literally. And, you know, one day we, we had, I think, eight meetings at uh, one of the agencies. I don't remember which one. I think it was WME. And um, I wanted to curl up on, a, on the floor of a bathroom and just weep myself to sleep because it's exhausting. Yeah. I wanted to run a marathon. And of course, that's not the way it works. And it, and it, eventually it it's, uh, was set up at STX and they let it go. And uh, in my conversations with Kelly and Dave with 87 North, they had signed a deal with Universal doing sub 30 and this, this hit the sweet spot. And to their credit, man, uh, you know, Bray Naftigo to Mark Provisario and, and Bob and I have been working on that thing for years. Uh, couldn't have gotten it across the, the, the um, goal line without them because they recognized and me talking with Dave, like, Dave, if you, if you saw this movie trailer and it starred Brad Pitt, you'd be cool. Brad Pitt's doing this kind of movie. But if you see this movie starring Bob Odenkirk, <laughs> yeah. you'll probably say, uh-huh, I have to see it. Yeah. <laughs> because like, it goes back to, I know that you know Bruce Willis got shit and they took his face off of the poster for Die Hard because he was the moonlighting guy. Mm-hmm. And now you can't see him as anything more than that's the John McClane, right? Yeah, if anything, it's weird to if you've never seen Moonlighting and you went and watched a random Moonlighting episode and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, it's funny seeing oh, Bruce Willis in this kind of role. Exactly. And you know, to that yeah. point, one of the comps we kept using was Colin Firth and Kingsman. Like when you see Colin show up and you're like, holy shit, he's kicking ass. That's much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Leslie, you, like Liam Neeson and Taken. That yeah. was a shock too to see. Well, and, and, and bef- around, uh, before that, so I, I actually did the remake for New Line, but the movie um, Man from Nowhere, right? Uh, Korean movie. Love oh, it. Yeah. Great little dark action movie. And um, the actor in that, I think he was kind of like the Korean Ross from Friends. He'd only been doing like <laughs> Korean soap operas. So for him to show up in that role, which is a very dark brooding role, was a surprise. But if you watch that, you're like, I can't see anyone else in it. Um, and that's and, that, and that's that's how it ended up being. And I the budget for uh, Nobody was sub 15 shot in Winnipeg. And I, I say this all the time. I can't speak highly enough of Winnipeg. Uh, fucking cold, um, oh, yeah. but people are awesome. Crew's awesome, and uh, uh, just the energy because it's hard to work in the cold, man. And it's hard to be Bob being flung a, around an unheated bus in the cold. And yet, dude, between him and Daniel, who is the uh, stunt coordinator, uh, they just made everyone grin. And my favorite, by the way, I'm rambling a bit, but my favorite, <laughs> my favorite scene. I, I was talking about this earlier with someone uh, to witness is on the, the bus fight scene uh, when Bob uh, wraps the call a liner on the guy's neck and is hitting him and it goes ding, ding, ding. <laughs> they drag him off and Bob, which isn't, wasn't ready, he just goes raw and hits him a, a final time. And Ilya goes cut and there's this pause and everyone erupted with just cheers <laughs> and cackling and going, oh man, ah, oh, the energy dude. Well, I, I think it's, Great. Oh, I was just going to say, what I love about the first John Wick and Nobody is just these slow builds of these characters. Like in John Wick, it's that John Leguizamo scene when you bring the car in and he starts like 
you know who's Cardis is? I think that's that sequence when I was in the theater, I was like, oh, you know, was immediately invested me even more. I was like, I love the build of his character. And the same thing with Nobody. I really didn't know, I don't watch trailers and I didn't know where it was going or like how this character, what this character was going to start doing. But I love the slow build of learning who this character is. And I think I, I love that about your, your work. It's like, it's almost an a- action in itself without yeah. being action. You know, it's like, there's something constantly has me like thrilled. Like now I'm learning. I can't wait to learn about this character. Like, who is he? What's, what's his story? You know, it's this. And also there's this in your, in your favorite characters, is there's this sense of impending, like my favorite character uh, at least now, and when I think about his Max von Sydow, who plays Joe Bear in Three Days of the Condor, he's like this grandfatherly man who at the time was probably my age, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, he just had the mustache and he just he looked older and he talked very quietly. And I still remember after they murder everyone in that building, you have the, the woman upstairs and he says, could you please step away from the window? And she says, I won't scream. And he says, I know. And you're just like, <laughs> who is this guy? And then, of course, at the very end, when he kills the big bad, and because that's who the contract was for. And then he's like, can't get a ride in the city. And then he drops Robert Redford off and he does the classic speech of this is how it will happen. You know, someday someone, you know, will drive up in a car like this and ask you to get inside. <laughs> You're just like, it alludes <laughs> to a world. And that's the universe built. Makes me mm. wish that Max von Sydow and Dolph Lundgren were in a movie together. <laughs> grand old Swedes. Um, By the way, he's in so many movies. I bet you they have. actually, yeah, they might be in a movie. <laughs> there might be like three movies together now that I've said that out loud. Um, I was going to ask about as far as the, the few things we did find online. And again, these are also recent that they are likely still in play. But I was curious to ask about the Hitman uh, TV oh, adaptation. Yeah. Uh, is that something that came and went or is that still kind of an iron in the fire? Uh, I just have to say, though, there is a movie called The Final Inquiry and Dolph Lundgren and Max von Sydow. Actually, oh, what year is that? Uh, mm-hmm. Let's see. 2006. Oh, man. All right. I got to see that. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to see it to go like, well, there it is. Yep. Um, so Adrian Iscaria uh, is a producer attached to Hitman. And uh, he reached out to me a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, just to use a fan of, of John Wick one and two, and, uh, uh, we built it out and, uh, it's, I, I wrote the first episode and I wrote the second episode because in the day and age of streaming, uh, as you guys well know, the first one can be as good or as bad as you think it's the second one that gives us hooks in people, you know, mm. and, uh, they let me take the source material and I played the games, you know, it's, I love that character, but as soon as you have a bald guy show up with a, uh, uh, a code at the back of his neck, you know, that what's yeah. it called? Barcode, barcode, or, barcode, yeah. barcode at the back, base of his neck. You're like, that's the badass, you know? Mm-hmm. So instead the idea was you just, you follow a character who's normal. He's much more like uh, the classic hitman of the sixties, seventies, you know? And of course, by the end of the episode, uh, he comes to realize that every choice he's ever made hasn't been a choice, but manipulated. And uh, you know, the last shot in the show is him taking a, um, a, a black light to the back of his neck and seeing that it's under the skin. Um, and it becomes a, a, a psychological thriller, like, but you know, the fuck ton of action um, as to the whole, is there any such thing as free will? 
And yet uh, you have the mystery that you begin, begin to peel back the layers and it's a blast. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been on the precipice for a long time. Um, but to be honest, in the day and age of streaming, especially, it's hard to get an action series greenlit. Um, because let's be honest, if you pitch an action series, you're like, do I give a shit? You know, uh, if I posit it as a dramatic thriller, which it is, um, yes, but because of the IP and where it comes from, it's known as an action thing. And you're like, yeah, but read the scripts. And then they read them like, this is cool, <laughs> but it's action. It's like, no, yes. God damn it. You know? <laughs> um, but I love that one. It's, it's so cool. And it was a joy. And I, I, I love I love the partners involved with that. You know, it was Fox 21. It was Adrian. It was Iron Sharpens Iron. It was Best Idea Wins. And we came up with something special. And hopefully one day you'll see it. Uh, and what about also popped up uh, another action thriller, surprise, surprise, uh, called The Steward. Is that also in the works? Or? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the steward is, is awesome. I, I, I had a, it, there was an original idea pitched in the room and, uh, you know, paid to write the script and it was a co-pro and the financing dried up and uh, it, you're, we're kind of waiting for it to go into turnaround. You know, it's one thing to go into turnaround and you can snap it back for what you were paid, maybe. Um, but now when you have an entity that doesn't quite know what it is, um, and I've experienced this a couple of times of wanting something back and they're like, oh, but you're that Derek now. So it's a million dollars. And you're like, dude, no, you know, um, but that was a fun one, you know, cause it, it took place in Sweden and it's, you know, again, it was, Sweden. Uh, yeah, it was my, uh, it was my, it was kind of like my female led man on fire. Uh, a little girl goes missing and building out a world there. And, uh, it was, it was, it was super cool because, you know, in watching movies like uh, Let the Right One In, you get this kind of, you know, as a guy who, you know, lives in the States, uh, visually that, that movie's stunning. And so it was kind of taking the, the deep winter of Northern Sweden and this kid is missing. And how do you, like, what does that world and underworld look like? Uh, it was fun, but it's just kind of in limbo, but not like, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it's limbo yeah. because you're like, yeah, I, good luck, God bless, please. But we'll see. Well, and that's a good segue into just the general idea because I've, I've had people ask me as well. Um, I feel like everyone understands the idea of like rejection. You know, you kind of expect that if you go into any entertainment or any business, really, the idea that uh, you're, you're going to get some no's and how do you deal with that? But I, I've definitely, I think people, uh, the thing, cause I guess people don't talk about them as much is the limbo is of the idea of how do you, how do you personally deal with having things in limbo where it is kind of that you can't, I guess maybe this is a depressing way to put it, but I think of the no. idea of how parents who had kidnapped children often will admit they get to that point where they're like, if they're dead, I just want to know, like the, the not knowing is almost worse. Yeah. And you know, I've, I did one two years ago and I love it and it was a package and it's great. And then, you know, funding sources changed and, you know, things happen. And now it's like they're in the, the they're trying, you know, trying to get it back. And yet you have all these various strings attached and, and names attached. You're like, no, I, no, like there, no, no money exchanged hands between all these people who have strings attached. Can we just make this cool thing? Um, 
and honestly, like when you think of pitches is a good example, like, dude, as a screenwriter, uh, you know, rejection is our bread and butter. We're used to it. Uh, when people say cool, you're like, what? <laughs> and you know, we're all, we're all ready for failure. It's success that you got to be ready for. That's the hard one. You know, um, I was, I think we joked about it before, but like, I would love to give a pitch and have one of two reactions an exact going, love it, got no notes, buying it. Or worst thing ever, go fuck yourself and never talk to me again. <laughs> yeah. And my reaction to both would be like, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Instead of like, that was awesome. There's so many things we can do and then never hear from them again, you know? Or like what guy always gets at me too uh, is, yeah, because again, sometimes it's nice to just be the like, eh, sorry, no. But where it's kind of like, I, I like the idea or something. If you could maybe like flesh it out a little bit more and bring it back. But it's like, that's kind of its own trap of how many times yeah. are you going to do well, that dance with the same person? Like, you know, and the funny thing is, is like that dance never has the same outcome. You know, I've been involved in some projects that, you know, I'd say back in the day, like even when I first came out here, there is this chasm between TV and film and you know, never the two shall mix type thing. Um, and now like you go in and you could have a full, fully fleshed out pitch being one or the other and have something very powerful say, dude, I love it. I'll buy it, but make it a movie or make it the opposite of what you came in here to do, um, uh, which is a little bit of at first surreal, but now you kind of realize what the algorithm algorithms of the world in the streaming space, you gotta be ready for it, you know? And, you know, you look at any good idea or good piece of IP, could there have been a Walking Dead movie? Sure, probably been badass. Walking Dead series, you know, global phenomenon. Um, and yet there is that, that trifecta of skill, luck, and timing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, one of the things that I'll say to, to writers nowadays too is just be prepared for anything. And anything is even more so than just film or TV. It can be game, it can be podcast. Uh, and honestly, you know, scripted podcast has become a huge thing in, in that medium. And yet when you look at it, it's like, dude, go back to late, go back to the thirties with the shadow on the, the radio mm -hmm. serials. Still kind of cool. Yeah, you got a good movie, and it can be done that way. And a guy uh, in a in in an Uber can listen to that on his uh, iPhone and, and be thrilled. You're doing your job right because a good story is a good story. So sometimes you fight for the lane you're in, um, but I, I don't think most of the time that you should really lock yourself away in a trench, saying no, this is a TV show and a TV show only. You got to be open to what the market wants because here's the other thing is if you have a tv show idea and they want a feature and it does well it's going to become a tv show yeah <laughs> uh and so you, you almost have to you know and i think i'm sure that you and pat and josh have done the same thing we're like have you ever found yourself pitching in a room and there's an idea and you're like okay i have to derail this pitch because i i see what that idea means to a guy let's see what happens and it's a 50 50 usually it's a fiery train wreck where everyone dies or you're like, you hit it, you know, that's what they want, you know? And I think you have to be willing to read the room and alter and change accordingly because come the end of it, like um, our goal is for things to get made and to be somewhat watchable. <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy to be living through this era where I feel like really there are no rules. Amazon just announced that 
their Lord of the Rings show is going to cost $450 million. Like, cause that, that had been one of the rules was just like, well, you can't do the Avengers yeah. as a TV show. Cause it's too expensive. Even the most expensive TV shows, they aren't spending that much money, but now they are. So. Yeah. Well, and you know, like, it's kind of like when you watch behind the scenes of a movie, so especially horror and uh, sci-fi fantasy, you can watch a movie and it's like six out of 10. And then you watch behind the scenes and how much work they did and their love for it. And you're like 10, 10 out of 10. I want to watch this again. I love these guys. And then the opposite is true. You see a movie and you're like, that was fun. Seven. And then you, then you hear it, it cost 80 million. You're like, yeah, two. What? Yeah. How totally. is that $80 million? <laughs> um, but again, too, like, I think, uh, do you remember that scene, the movie Open Range with Kevin Costner? Oh yeah, great ending. What I love about that movie is it's slow. It's got the sense of impending and it's building. And there's that scene where they have chocolate for the first time and they have that expensive cigar and you can tell they don't quite know how to eat the chocolate or smoke the cigar. And Kevin Costner's like, you ever been in a shootout? He's like, no, to Duvall. <laughs> and then Kevin's like, well, tell you what, when the shooting starts, just start shooting. And he walks up to the line of 15 guys and the whole movie has been, they brought in a gunslinger and Kevin Costner walks up to the guy in the bowl, like the bowler cat. And he said, you, the gunslinger, the guy goes, yeah. And Kevin just pulls his gun and shoots him in the face. And Duvall goes, Oh shit. And just starts shooting the shotgun. What I love about that scene is no one saw that coming to the theater. And it became this, we were cackling. And we're like, Holy shit. That to me, is where every good story goes. Like you've seen this before, except for this thing, you know? Mm. Uh, and when you see something like Lord of the Rings and dude, I'm a fan of all of that stuff. I hope it's incredibly well, but like 50 million an episode? Yeah. <laughs> I hope, man. I hope against hope. I mean, I, I at least hope you can just, I, I'll be excited if you can see the money on the screen because there's been oh. past expensive shows where I'm often just like, I don't understand, like Rome, I always use an example, HBO's Rome, which at the time was the most expensive show ever made because they built these like big standing sets. But I felt just like watching the show, no offense to the show, I enjoyed the show, but I was like, this doesn't really look that much more expensive to me than Deadwood. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I understand that they built this Roman city, but like it didn't have that feeling of the like, oh my God, I can't believe they built this whole thing for the show. But that's the thing, though, is like when, again, you go to your favorite scenes in any mo mo uh, movie or TV, it tends to be a very intimate bottle episode type scene. Like, honestly, if you gave me Lord of the Rings, uh, an episode would be no dialogue, Legolas being hunted by orcs, and you do the, the first blood. Oh, yeah, well, I was going to say, my it's favorite uh, Sopranos episode is the one where Christopher and Polly have to go kill the Russian guy out in the Pine Barrens. Yep. And they, like, can't find their keys or whatever and are just stuck in the van all night. Great episode. <laughs> well, too, like we always remember like i love the show justified right it it's not an action show but it's cut together like an action show because of this kind of old-timey u.s marshal in postmodern times um but i just remember there remember that uh, it was in the first couple episodes there was that hit hitman who put a gun on the table between you and he'd give this speech and if you reach for the gun he'd stab your hand you know and then take the gun and shoot you and he starts the speech up with uh uh, you know, Timothy Oliphant. Timothy Oliphant looks at him, looks at the table and just tugs the, the uh, tablecloth <laughs> yeah. and jumps in his hand and goes, boom. That's awesome. 
I want that. And that's actually what Barry has done so well, you know, is you could easily go into the, the hitman tropes with action, but it, it knows what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our favorite scenes in those kinds of shows tend to be very, very intimate. Like looking at Breaking Bad, like it's the last season when Walter's out in the desert with, you know, his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law gives him this look and he's just like, well, you're the smartest man I know, but even I know we're going to die out here. And in that moment, you're like, oh, you know, there's whoa. But it's two guys in the desert, you know, and honestly, regardless of medium, regardless of story, it's the character. There's a reason we keep going back to the, the well of those we love is because we love that character. We want to see him again. And we want him to succeed while he fails. I was with Steve. I feel like I maybe cut you off uh, several minutes ago now. Uh, was there a question you were going to ask? Oh, no, 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 no. All good. Um, okay. Like what he's talking about character is just why the character in of John Wick is so fascinating. And the same with the nobody character, you know, you can see why, like in what you write, like the characters are action in themselves in their story, just by hearing what you're just saying. But no, I didn't have any questions. Uh, a lot. There's like a lot of new stuff that was announced. I don't really think it's worth bringing up, you know, because it's too new it's yes yeah, it's happen. too new yeah i was gonna so. ask about uh i keep bringing to ask you in uh real non-podcast life i think one of the first conversations we ever had you were talking about how you would just or were just about to pitch a take on a jekyll and hyde movie uh did that yeah. ever end up moving forward in any way that's it's funny you brought that up uh um yeah it's called the strange case and uh uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that one. And I actually just sent it off to a podcast company um, in regards to maybe thinking of doing it like a radio serial. Um, Cause I love those, I love those, those um, shows that begin one way and you're like, Oh, it's that kind of show. And then something said at the end, you're like, Oh shit, this is the count of Monte Cristo. You know, like in other words, taking some an, an old idea and putting it in a new space and strange case is my doctor and Jekyll, Mr. Hyde meets um kind of like long kiss goodnight and uh, uh jason Bourne, um and uh it's a blast but like a lot of the stuff i do as you all know it was a late night writing binge a 35 minute half hour episode going this would be cool right and <laughs> see what happens but that to me is the lifeblood of what we do is uh, you asked before like if i sell something or finish something or send it off uh the first thing i do when the kids are down is i come in here and i write fade in and I just write a couple of pages to see what happens. You know, sometimes it's nothing. Other times it's just like, you know, you get that grin of the first draft. You know, it's just you. It's you on that battlefield with no bodies yet. <laughs> <laughs> and when Jekyll or Strange Case is that one, did you pitch that to studios? No, I, I, you know, I, I had it set up for a while with Shell Clark. And, you know, we just, um, it just kind of... It, it wasn't a matter of derailment. It was a matter of bandwidth and we just didn't really, you know, it just happens. And what I love about the best um, uh, relationships out there, she's the one that I'm doing that other one called uh, with the H collective and stuff. And uh, I, it was like, dude, it isn't working. Cool. What do you want to do next? That to me is what the relationships have to be is even if there's a, a tenuous strand of you still attached to something, it isn't a matter of snapping a strand. It's a matter of going, okay, cool. What else can we do? Because there's still an energy there, you know, and, you know, I think you and I joke about it when we do talk of going the projects we're talking about now, we're going to talk about a premiere a year from now going, that's the one got made. 
like of all everything else we've been pitching and, and building out, that's the one. And to be honest, nobody, that was a fuck ton of work and patience and the dance among dances. And not only was it made, it was made well and found love in the age in, in, in the day and age of COVID, like who's to know. Um, and yet that's also part of the game because like, uh, I'm not George Lucas, you know, I, I haven't built out something like star Wars, but like, you have to look at stories in general going, dude, I got a lot to say. I got a lot of love and I got a love. I got a lot of love for those who have stuff to say. Yeah. I love the director of nobody. Uh, I love hardcore Henry. I, I, I gush about that movie a lot. Like I wish that movie would be released once a year theatrically so people can re you know, see it on the big screen because I think on at home, it doesn't do enough justice, but that was really awesome that he directed that, uh, your film. Yeah. He's, and Ilya Neischiller is a great dude. What I love is, um, uh, when we first met the gangsters were not Russian because I was coming out of John wick and he's like, you got to make him Russian. Now. He's Russian. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why man? I don't want to get pigeonholed. It's like, wait, two things. You write them so well. And we love being the bad guys. <laughs> cool. <we're off>. Here <laughs> we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but he's also the guy where, you know, Bob was a writer first, you know, I mean, he's got a stand up past. Uh, he understands um, scripts better than I do. Like he'll defer a lot to the genre of it all because I'm the guy who likes action, but he understands character. I mean, he, you, you watch that movie and you look for the little things um, like in the bus action sequence, it was his idea that when he gets hit first, Derek, he's got to fall down and hit his head on the, on the bar. Like he's got to hit his head here. Like, you know, he's in, and then there'd be another little sequence where he's like, Oh, you know, it'd be good. And he wasn't thinking from a standpoint of comedy, but of humor. You know, like when, like when he kicks the knife into the guy's leg, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of partnership and Ilya was the one just, you know, giggling alongside us for a long time. And like with any production, um, you run out of money, you run out of time. And what was so cool about Dave and Kelly is they were there for, for most, uh, most of the shooting. So it was um, uh, Braden and Mark, but like uh, on the last day they had a pre lit set and they're out of time and dave grabbed an assistant and he grabbed a camera and he ran around set and he, he got pickups a shit ton of pickups that helped out you know uh and, and here's a guy coming off of deadpool 2 and Hobbs and shaw and you know the biggest stuff in the world and here's our little movie that could and he was still like god damn this is fun you know? <laughs> awesome. well I think maybe a good time to wrap things up. I like ending on that positive note. Uh, Steve, you had any final question? Oh oh, yeah. I'm sorry. One question. I love John Leguizamo's character. What was there a reason why he wasn't in part three? You know, in his, his role in the second one was much larger and got cut down just because that's what movies tend to do. And at that point it was like, well, I think probably from his standpoint, I did all of that work in the second one, didn't see screen time. Okay. You know, um, which it sucks because he's such a fucking good actor and such a good dude. And yet, honestly, when you build out a world like that to do it right, you know, you have to put certain characters on the sidelines in the hopes of circling back at a certain point, you know, in my youth, there's three star Wars, you know, you hear about, Jabba Hutt in the first one and you know Han Solo's frozen in the second one and you're just like 
okay. Um, but as we try to do more of these things, I, you know, he's still alive in my world and I, I hope he comes back because he's a great dude. Oh yeah. I love his character. And also I think it's awesome that Mark Dukakis was the uh, villain in part two, because I, what I love, I'm a huge fan of um, Keanu Reeves, the movie he directed, Man of Tai Chi. Yeah. I, I love the boss battle with him at the ending fighting the lead. I, I love that. I love that fight. And I love like how you had the mini boss battle where you had those two Shinobi guys, the guys from the raid. And yeah. then he oh, bases yeah. off against the Kakas. I just think he's such an underrated actor. And I was just, when he came on screen, I don't watch, I don't watch trailers. When I went to see that opening day and I saw him, I, you don't understand how happy I was. <laughs> I was By like, the way, and I think you guys know this, usually the guys in movies who play the bad guys are the nicest guys in the world. And he is one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And at that, at that uh, premiere party, uh, where we used to have those, remember those? Oh, no. yeah. Like, but he was just <laughs> ecstatic and like fanboy and uh, so am I and so are they. And it was just awesome. Yeah, he's, uh, did you ever see uh, the 90, 1997 movie he was in called Drive? No. It, uh, check it out. It's really cool. Steve Wang directed it. Steve Wang directed Guyver 2. Steve Lang did? Oh, Wang. Steve Wang. Oh, Wang. I thought it was Stephen Lang. Wow. Okay. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> I wish Stephen Lang was a director. Um, no, Steve Wang. Yeah, he directed Guyver, Guyver 2, and then he directed Drive. And he was doing like wire work, you know, before, you know, the Matrix and all that stuff. Because yeah. I, mean, I, I saw that I visited the set of Guyver 2, and he was doing wire work in a freaking. I love that you visited the hand. set of Guyver 2. Yeah. Well, it was like, <laughs> I, I, I somewhat. You know, it was like one of the first when I, when I was getting into film, one of the first things I got to be in the editing room for that. It was awesome. But, yeah, I got to be on that set and it was it was unreal, like yeah. wire work in an airport hangar. But, yeah, but uh, Drive, like, yeah, the boss battle with at the ending of that, it's like they're to cock, Mark, I don't know if I have to say his name correct, but, yeah, it's all wire work battle. But, yeah, I think I think you could rent it on Prime. It's, it's one of yeah. I don't know, man. It, it just always bugged me that he wasn't. Wasn't as big as you know. I like seeing him in Brotherhood of the Wolf and all that. But oh, when yeah. I saw him in John Wick Three, I was like, and you know, you did such a great, and that was such a perfect character for him too. That was that was Chad. I mean, he had known him for years and was just a massive fan of him and his work. And you know, in the day and age of YouTube, it's been a joy to go like, hey, remember that scene in Chasing the Dragon or Kiss the Dragon with Jet Li? Oh, and yeah. then you try to explain it, like, wait, I can put bring it up and. Uh, and, and or like uh, District B thirteen, like there there are oh, so yeah. many movies where you're like, look at that, look at how they did that, you know, how did they do that? Now Chad and Dave, because of their extensive stunt background, they know how, and you know they also know how to use digital in such a way that your eyes aren't looking at what has been manipulated, and so you you buy into it. Um, but you look at a guy like Mark, and you look at a guy like the honestly the Kung Fu Masters, and you're like, that's him, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so badass. Yeah, because I love that scene with them two just sitting down before they fight in the third act. It's so good. Yeah. You know, so. It's, anyway. To me, it's like we always go back to Westerns. You always have that mm -hmm. conversation, that moment of like, uh, you're the good guy. I'm the bad guy. And maybe in another situation, it might be differently. But eh. And then you have the classic fight at the end. Um, oh, yeah. But those, those, those tropes work. And I love them. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes in that film, too. So good. Uh, well, actually, maybe a good way to close things out, since this is an unusual episode for us, more of just a straight interview uh, about screenwriting. 
Um, I'm always interested to hear other writers. What's your, uh, I don't process is the wrong word, but you know, when you get up in the day, what do you do first? Where do you work? You know, how do you kind of, how do you kind of structure your days? So you can be most productive. Uh, you know, in, in success as of late, it's been hard and, and not in a bad way. I'm, I'm never going to bitch about that. Um, but in the day, I, I say in the, in the day and age, I don't know what I'm doing there. But, um, <laughs> Zooms, like I'm not, I live in Pasadena. So like I used to be in a car for four hours or five hours for three meetings. Now you and I can have five to seven Zooms and we're like, what the hell did we get done? Um, honestly, one of the things I'm trying to do is kind of go pre- uh, this is a paying gig hours, like trying to get up at five, five 30 and just having two hours where I know everyone else is asleep. Cause psychologically that's appealing. I'm not a morning person. I'm not a night person anymore, but like, there's something about that. Like I'm not going to get pinged by anybody. And then, um, I like getting those three hour stretches, you know? So if I can get like an hour, hour and a half in the morning, three before noon, three afternoon, and then maybe two at night, you know, um, it's great. Uh, now, we have the, so many brands in the fire and yet I always want to deliver on what I, what I've, I've promised. And so uh, I'll focus on one for 80% of the time and then two for 10 a piece, you know? And then I always give myself a half hour just to doodle and come up with new cool shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. That's great. Uh, well, thank you so much, Derek, for joining us. Pleasure, man. Um, I don't know. I can't, do you, are you on social media? Is that something? No. All right. <laughs> you, you know what? In some ways you lucky, lucky. Yeah. Um, it, it, it can be fun, but it's also horrible in so many ways. And oh, I yeah. usually regret looking at Twitter whenever. <laughs> um, but all that said, you should follow us on Twitter at never made film. We're also on Instagram at best movies, never made. We also recommend that you should download the electric now app, which is an app where you can watch movies and TV shows for free. And more importantly, video of our podcast and the other podcasts on the electric surge network, like the four 30 movie and inglorious Trexperts. We'd like to thank everyone here at our network in particular, Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark a Altman and Dean Devlin. Uh, until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.